2: Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist's Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with Les. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. I'm here with my good friend and co-host T.K. Coleman. Let's go. We've got Malabama here.
3: Hi, everybody.
2: Nicodemus is going to be joining us during the lightning round, the right here, right now segment. We're going to check in with him as well. He's calling into the podcast. But before then, big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and our YouTube channel and all of our work 100% advertisement free, because say it with me, y'all, advertisements Advertisements suck. suck. Yes, they do. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or a comment for our show, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Kelly.
4: Hi, I'm Kelly from Palm Bay, Florida, and I was curious how do you control the fear of missing out on things like physical things when you're on like a once in a lifetime vacation? How do you keep from like buying everything?
2: TK, what a fascinating question here, because ultimately we're talking about souvenirs. And souvenir, to me, has become almost a curse word. And let me explain why. I'm not anti-souvenir. And if you want to buy souvenirs for your trip, and you're going to get value from them, great. But for the longest time, I was almost a collector of souvenirs. And they... They almost circumvented my experience. They got in the way of my experience. They became clutter of a sort because, well, I was always tempted by the purchase of a souvenir, the promise that I was almost solidifying my trip. In fact, she even used some words here, FOMO or the fear of missing out, but also once in a lifetime trip, once in a (laughs) lifetime
5: experience, all the stories we tell ourselves. Oh, man. And the stories that advertisers teach us to tell ourselves, right? Having an expiration date doesn't automatically make something valuable, but that's how they teach us to think. This pen is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. In the next 30 seconds, this deal will be over. There are only 10 of these pins in all of existence. Okay, that may be true. That doesn't mean I need one. Professor <laughs> Sean's drooling right now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> He is so
2: old. are <laughs> reminding me of, I saw this uh, sea salt, and it said like, Himalayan sea salt, 250 million years in the Himalayas, and you flip it over, had an expiration date. You're like, wait a minute. Wait. (laughs) Just my luck. I've waited 250 million years, bought the sea salt, and it just expired after a quarter billion years. Shucky (laughs) darn.
5: Yeah, man, you got to be careful with the illusion of scarcity. Um and, and, and we're sort of hardwired in a way to instinctively respond to scarcity by hoarding. Oh, that's scarce. We may run out. We never want to be without something that we need. I better buy it just in case. If there's an abundance of it, ah, just in case it doesn't have a lot of power. But if it's scarce. But scarcity is not a substitute for need. I was uh, at this event just this past week and I talked to this guy who like, I guess he sells these really valuable, rare like um, statues and relics and so on. And he was telling me about the Pieta, which is this like statue. And he says that he's selling one that's made out of pure silver. And he says, there's literally only one of these in existence. And I was like, oh, Interesting. (laughs) But it's like, you know, I'm still cool with my little uh, $5 paper copy of the Pieta. (laughs) I don't need the, you know, the the thing that's made out of all silver just because there's only one. But sometimes we get seduced into that kind of thinking. And so when you're on these trips, what matters is not how many times am I going to have the opportunity to come here again? How many times am I going to be in this gift shop again? How many times will I get the chance to buy that one button or that one T-shirt? But the real question is, does that bring me joy? Because if it doesn't, the scarcity is not a substitute for that fulfillment, you know?
2: That word seduced is so appropriate here Mm. because that is what a lot of these gift shops and souvenir shops and clutter shops, junk stores essentially do is they seduce us. Seduction simply means to offer more than you can possibly deliver. And that can be fun in a context when it's playful with someone else. If I'm trying to seduce my wife, I'm going to, to... make her feel as though she's going to have the most amazing date with me or the most amazing experience together. That could be fun and playful. However, when scarcity is involved and you're saying, I need you to buy this thing in order to complete yourself, to complete your trip, or to solidify your trip. In a way, it becomes a marker for the experience, but what i found with souvenirs in particular or any ornaments that we purchase while we are traveling, they often become clutter. Why is that? Well, they get in the way in several ways first thing is they get in the way because they weigh me down literally. Like, oh, now I have to store that thing in my bag. Or we were just out for a walk and I have to carry it with me. And so it becomes a burden. But it becomes a burden in other ways as well. If I am going to a resort and we're on the beach, instead of enjoying the beach, I'm enjoying the shopping because I feel like I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to buy something that represents this trip. Well, then it's getting in the way of me experiencing that once in a lifetime travel. And sure, you might go home with the the artifact, but did you actually experience the trip (laughs) in the same way? I'm thinking about one of the most profound experiences in my life, TK. I went To South Dakota. I was driving through South Dakota. Ryan and I were on a book tour and we decided to stop by Mount Rushmore. And by itself, Mount Rushmore is the most impressive piece of art that I've ever seen. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely stunning. And you recognize the amount of effort and work and time that went into it. Now, this is before I knew about all of the other issues with the procuring of the land and, and everything yeah. that happened there, which was not ideal. In fact, one, one would say, I would certainly say that, oh, yeah, that I would have done that differently if it were up to me. But just seeing the piece of art for yeah. what it was, yeah. absolutely stunning. However, the experience is ruined because there are entire towns as you approach Mount Rushmore that are predicated on selling you cheap plastic replicas of Mount Rushmore. And what happens is, instead of simply driving through South Dakota, and imagine if you just look up and you see the most fascinating, most wondrous piece of art that you've ever seen, and it's just a moment of awe. Mm. It's almost as though they're preparing you And so it lets you down in a way. They're preparing you by marketing to you, by advertising to you, by trying to convince you to take a piece of Mount Rushmore home with you. I'm not taking a piece of this home. This is just a a cheap plastic replica, but it is not the thing itself. And that's quite often what happens with souvenirs. These replicas, we mistake them as though they are the experience, they are the art, but quite often they
5: simply get in the way of the art. That's right, man. You make me realize that that statement, the best things in life are free, is true because the best things truly can't be packaged, bottled up, and sold. The real once-in-a-lifetime is not some product you're trying to sell me, it's the opportunity to be present and to enjoy the moment without feeling the need to buy some trinket that proves that I've been there. Because that moment is so much bigger than being able to prove that I've been there. And when I need to prove that I've been there, when I need to buy something that I don't even want that clutters up my house just to validate the trip, I've reduced it to I've reduced it to something that is so much less. I remember when I was a kid, man, I, I just I had this thing for everything that was shiny. And so I I got into collecting coins and uh, I wanted every shiny coin. And one day there's a commercial that came on and I'm sitting at the kitchen table with my dad watching TV and this guy is selling like this, uh, I guess it's like minted from the U.S. Treasury. There's only like a hundred of these coins. And he goes, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I was begging my dad to buy it for me. Go, dad, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And my dad says, and so if it is, why is he selling it to you? If it's really a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, why is this guy trying to get rid of it as quickly as possible to anybody that's willing to give him something that's really valuable to him, the cash that he's going to get? And so many times we're told, act now, Mm -hmm. act now. Why? Because you need to act before you have time to think. Because once you have time to think, you'll realize that this really isn't that valuable and you won't buy. So act now before you have time to think. Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Hurry, hurry, hurry.
2: (laughs) Yeah, supplies are limited, right? <laughs> yeah. And what are we doing? We're creating a false sense of urgency. However, I would like to play devil's advocate for a moment and we yeah. can state the case for when it makes sense to buy souvenirs. I said, I'm not against souvenirs. Now, I have a reduction mindset typically. I'm always asking, can I go without a thing? Because I don't want to clutter my life. I only know that through experience. Unfortunately, I cluttered my life with way too many things that got in the way of actually living. So I have the wisdom of knowing that as I heap more things onto my life, onto my existence, it often gets in the way of my experiences. However, I'm not against material possessions. I own material possessions. I'm speaking into a microphone. I have a pin right here in my hand. It's not nearly as expensive as Sean's pins, but it works (laughs) well for me. There's a camera here that's filming this for the video version of the podcast. We have a desk that Mallory's standing at there. We all have some things. We have a really nice custom built desk here. In fact, The, the difference is there's intentionality here. The things that I do, I do them deliberately. Because I made so many unintentional choices throughout my life that caused pain, suffering, discontent. And that is when souvenirs become a problem. However, I'm not trying to eliminate all souvenirs or be anti-souvenir or saying, bah, humbug, shun all souvenirs. No, because that stance is very similar to consumerism, Mm. Shunning souvenirs is not going to make you happy, just like acquiring all the souvenirs is not going to make you happy. And what I've realized is that if it makes sense to purchase something, then I'm willing to do it. I've set up some boundaries in my life that prevent me from buying most souvenirs. But let's say that I'm out traveling with my wife and our daughter doesn't happen to be with us. It might make sense to bring something home for her that is a piece of the experience that we had so that we can talk about it and have a new experience together. I'm not simply going to hand her the rock or the widget and say, here, here's a plastic thing of Mount Rushmore. Enjoy it. No, but if I am out there and I buy something that is going to remind me of the experience and allows me to talk about the experience in a way that she can also get a benefit from it. And so... I'll do that with postcards quite often. If I'm traveling, I'll get a postcard and I'll send it while I'm there. Not because I should do it. Not because I'm required to do it. It's not an obligation. If it felt like an obligation, then that would also become clutter. It would ruin the experience. However, if I buy the postcard and send it to someone I'm thinking about, hey, I'm here. Yeah. Uh, wherever, Mount Rushmore, or I'm in the Grand Cayman Islands or whatever. I'm going to send you this postcard, let you know I'm thinking of you, and then
5: I've let it go. Yeah. What you're talking about is the complete opposite of the fear of missing out. It's the joy of living fully. You're not buying something that you don't want because of the fear that you'll never get the opportunity again. You're investing in something that makes you come alive because of the joy it brings to you and others. That's the difference that makes the difference.
2: That's right. It's the joy of missing out because you're always missing out on something. Mm -hmm. You can replace that FOMO with JOMO and you can love missing out. You're missing out on the clutter. You're missing out on the stress. You're missing out on the burdens. You're missing out on the anxiety. There's no fear in that. We only talk about fear when there's a negative consequence ahead. But there's joy when you see the possibility of living in the moment and being unburdened in the future. And the only way to do that is to let go right now, not just let go of the thing or the souvenir or the the burden that might be burdening you in the future, but simply letting go of the need to acquire something to
5: make me more complete. Hey, I'm sorry, you just threw up an alley-oop. And I'm about to slam dunk it with the best maximum we've ever had in history. Let me hear it. <laughs> when you trade in that FOMO for a little bit of JOMO, you won't have to live in fear no more.
3: <laughs> Ooh, nice. That's
2: Ke- at least in the top 10. <laughs> Kelly, I'll say one more thing for you here. Clutter is less tempting when you are grounded in your values. When you know you value the experience of travel that little trinket becomes less enticing, less tempting, less valuable to you because what is actually valuable is what you value. You don't value the cheap plastic things. Those things don't solidify your experience. They get in the way of the experience. And if you want to get clear on what your values are, I would encourage you to download, we have a free values worksheet, which you can download for free at theminimalists.com slash V, as in values. And on that worksheet, you can simply print it out. You can write down, here are my foundational values. Here are my structural values. Here are my surface values. And also, what are my imaginary values? The values that get in the way of living a meaningful life. I think you'll find some value in that values worksheet, Kelly. Our next question is from Sally.
6: My name is Sally from St. Louis, and I'm a Patreon subscriber. I would love to gain your insight on minimizing tattoos, more specifically, tattoo removal. Over the years, I accumulated several large, colorful, and highly visible tattoos that I feel no longer serve me. Some of these aren't all that old. I recently had some rework done to try and make myself love them, Unsurprisingly, it didn't work. During my last appointment, I actually stopped the session midway. Now I'm facing a lengthy, painful, and financially cumbersome removal process. I'm dealing with guilt and turmoil over the situation because there's no way for me to know if these tattoos can be fully removed. I can technically afford the removal and the shop offers a pay upfront complete removal package but I'm still living in fear of the unknown. How can I reconcile this?
2: TK, what we're talking about here is a different kind of fear from the previous question. This is the fear of the unknown, which is what all fears are. Every fear is the fear of the unknown. We don't fear the known. We fear the unknown that we think will lead to negative consequences, right? And so... Here's the fascinating thing with tattoos. I absolutely love tattoos when they're done really well and the other person feels great about them. My wife is head to toe in in tattoos, and they look great. Now, she waited till later in life to get them. I think she was 36 when she got her first one, and then from there, it was just like more and more and more. She turned her body into a canvas for art, and that's beautiful. I have another friend who she has a bunch of tattoos, but she's getting some removed that she didn't like when she got when she was younger because she feels like they don't align with, it sounds very similar to to Sally. Like I've accumulated these, but isn't that a metaphor almost for materialism in a way? I think about all the things that I accumulated and they felt so permanent at the time. And then removing them was, as Sally said, painful. Letting go is painful. Now she's talking about physically painful and that's one thing i remember i threw my back out once getting rid of books and that was physically painful (laughs) i didn't know i'd have to go through that right but it was it was a stressor that i didn't want but also the mental emotional psychological pain of letting go i thought i was this kind of person and i thought this was permanent we think everything is permanent when we bring it into our lives not realizing that on a long enough timeline nothing is permanent. Everything is ephemeral. Even those permanent tattoos on a long enough timeline will all disappear, will all dissipate. Do you have any thoughts for Sally?
5: Yeah. So I think about the words of James Baldwin, who said, you know, we think we are alone in our pain, but then we begin to observe the lives of others. And we realize that our pain is simply one chain and a link that connects us to all of humanity. And one of the best first steps for dealing with any problem is contextualizing that problem with a sense of, this is more common, more normal than I realize. That I'm not alone in my suffering, that I'm not weird, I'm not a freak, I'm not crazy. This is part of what it means to be human. I say that because even though tattoos are the specific theme, all of us everywhere have to deal with the consequences of our own evolution. To exist is to evolve. We change over time. We become that which we are not currently. And when that happens, we have to reconcile that to our past. Our past always involves commitments, entanglements, agreements that have to be renegotiated. What happens when you're in a relationship that reflects past values, but you become someone and you get to a point and you say, if I'm being honest with myself, it will be unhealthy and detrimental to the other person to continue in this relationship. Well, that's going to be painful to go back and renegotiate an agreement that you made in the past when you felt really strongly about it then. So we're all dealing with this, whether it's moving from one place to another, renegotiating business arrangements, renegotiating relationship arrangements, or dealing with tattoos. It's part of what it means to be human. That doesn't downplay or dismiss the problem. It means, hey, You've got people in your life that can support you and relate to you and help you with this. And I would tap into that. The second thing I would say is the guilt part. I think that's a little bit more important than the fear part because it's your relationship to your past that's going to be the foundation for how you engage the future. And if you're condemning yourself for who you are based on what you've done, then it's going to be really hard to see clearly what the right path forward for you is. And I just wanna say, you don't owe anyone an apology for making the choices that you made in the past because that was the best that you knew at the time. And that was a reflection of the values you sincerely held at that time. And now that you've grown past that and you wanna do something different, you can be free in that and say, hey, that was a good decision for then. Now it's about making the best decision for now and you can leave the guilt out of it. And that just frees up so much emotional and psychological energy to think clearly and navigate the challenges that lie ahead. I'd like to take the metaphor a little bit further here because we were talking about
2: how this is very similar to materialism, accumulating a bunch of things that may have once served us or accumulating things that we thought were going to be great, but they turned out to not be that great. And that's where Sally is with the tattoos. Like, you've got a bunch of tattoos. You're like, oh, this is gonna be awesome, right? And by the way, you didn't really think about the pain. Maybe you did a little bit. The pain of getting the tattoo which may not be as extreme as the tattoo removal, but it's still painful to do a tattoo. But we say, oh, the pain is worth it because the reward, right? That's a story we tell ourselves. Another story I tell myself is, oh, is this pain of removal going to be worth it? I don't think it's going to be worth it. Well, don't we do that with our material possessions as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. Getting these things is going to be so great. But then it turns out not being as great as you thought. You bought that dress because it looked wonderful in the window mannequin, but then you got it home, you tried it on. Oh, it didn't look great, but I might as well hold on to it. And then you start to feel the guilt of, oh, I spent that money. I wasted my time. Oh, I should have got a different size. I should have purchased a different piece of clothing. Oh, is this the best use of that money? Maybe it wasn't, right? And that's where that guilt creeps in. And now she's even asking, is this the best use of that money going forward? Well, it depends. You can form a detente with the tattoos that you have. I think of uh, Steve-O from MTV's Jackass, yeah, yeah, right? Yep. He has a giant picture on his back of himself, like his head, and he's got a big thumbs up. And on it, there's a little thought bubble that says, I have a small wiener.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my uh, inner child came out for a moment there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and And you've got to like, you see that and imagine if I woke up and someone had put that tattoo on my back, oh my gosh, I would feel so upset and angry, but he did it on purpose, right? And it's all about the stories that we tell ourselves. He told himself, I want this because it's silly. It's a piece of me. A lot of people aren't going to get it. And that is okay. Mm-hmm. And so Sally, if I were in your shoes, what would I do? I'd love the tattoos that I love. I would remove the ones that no longer serve me. I'm not telling you to do that because I recognize there's pain associated with that, but I would treat it the same way I treat my material possessions. And I would welcome that pain in a way because that pain is a sign that, oh, maybe I want to be more intentional next time I make a decision like this because tattoos can be stunning, beautiful art on your body. Or if they're not done intentionally, I mean, we talk about an impulse purchase that keeps on giving. I I, I met there was one kid uh, I went to high school with. The day he turned eighteen, he went out and got a little Marvin the Martian tattoo on his arm. <laughs> oh, like,
3: Earthlings! Yeah.
2: <laughs> hey, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. And so <laughs> and so he has to live with that forever. I assume by now. At age 42, he's probably had it removed or he covers it up or whatever. But at time, for whatever reason, he thought that was cool. Yeah. And now he didn't do it intentionally. It was just he went to the tattoo shop. He saw Marvin the Martian on the wall and said, give me that one. It was an impulse purchase. (laughs) We pay the price for our impulse purchases, not just up front but through the guilt and the regret and the recurring expenses that happen Mm. from impulse. I want to give a
3: shout out to Sally for stopping mid-session. That's, that's got to be hard, right? Because tattoos are quite an investment. That's almost like how Josh has a hobby of walking out of movies if he's not into them. Mm-hmm. Being able to say, uh, I've changed my mind instead of just saying, well, I've already paid for it. I've already committed. I should see it through because maybe it'll look nice by the end of it. I, I just want to applaud her for that. That would be really hard for me to do.
2: That's a, that's a great point. So a willingness to walk away. And yes, this has bled way into other parts of my life, including movies. I just went to go see the latest Mission impossible film with my wife and it was packed sold out theater and everyone's real excited to be there we're watching it and it was just bad to me I'm not saying it's objectively bad but subjectively and I looked at my wife and she was very similar we were on the same page here and then everyone started laughing at a scene that wasn't very funny and we looked at each other and at the same time we both said should we just go and we just walked out of the film. And I, there's probably 40% of the movies I go to, I walk out on now. Mm. And the reason I do that isn't because of some sort of moral stance or that I'm better than it. I just realize that this is not a fit. And yes, I've already spent the money. That's the sunk cost. How am I going to spend the next hour though? Am I going to sit through a movie that I don't enjoy? Or am I just going to simply walk out right now and reclaim that time?
5: Mm. And there's always some trade-off, isn't there? Yeah. My heroes are people who are in in recovery because these are people who look at pain in the face and they say, I know you're going to hurt me and mock me in all sorts of imaginable ways, but I'm determined to walk through you because the pleasures of that freedom that awaits me on the other side are so much greater than the addictions that once define me, so much greater than the hurt that I'm going to go through to get there, you know? And so we all have a price to pay to be the person that we want to be and to get where we want to be. And the question to ask, is it worth it? Yeah. Is becoming who I want to be worth it? You know, another thing I'll say too about, about the tattoos that you can't remove. First, I would get an answer to that, right? Here's the problem with worry is that when we worry, there are an infinite number of possible problems we can worry about. And all of those possibilities get our energy, but in reality, there's only a finite number of problems that we have to solve at any given time. So tomorrow uh, it's possible there could be a fire uh, or earthquake, uh, there could be a storm, uh, there could be all other sorts of things that I can imagine right And all of those things get my energy. But when tomorrow comes it's it's gonna be it's gonna be something but it's not gonna be everything that I can imagine. And the amount of energy it takes to deal with one specific thing is much less than the amount of energy that it takes to chase after all these hypothetical scenarios. So when you're in a situation like this, where you're like, man, I'm in turmoil because I don't know if all of these can even be removed. Well, one step at a time, let's find out. Because if it turns out that they can all be removed, you don't wanna waste any energy worrying about that possibility. That's a hypothetical. Get the answers to your questions one step at a time And then focus your energy on dealing with what it actually is, not the million and one things that it possibly could be, because you don't have to deal with all of those things. Our next question is from Alex.
4: Hey team, my name's Alex and I'm calling in from Wisconsin. Uh, First, I'd like to start it with a thank you. The podcast supplies so much information and challenges a lot of my beliefs. And my Patreon subscription is a month in my monthly budget. My question is about fear. Specifically, how to reframe it and hopefully repurpose it into something useful. Uh, When I came out as a trans man several years ago, I vowed to be radically open and honest about this aspect of myself. I'm a firm believer in being the person you needed to see when you were younger and enjoy being someone people can come to for education. I don't regret this decision. It's helped me understand both myself better and make a difference in my communities. Uh, Recently, however... A coworker I was passably friendly with uh, shot his girlfriend when he found out she was trans. I know there was an element of closeness in this situation that wasn't in our coworker relationship, as in I wasn't the one he was going home to. Uh, but in his confession, he admitted to having more trans people to kill. Uh, thankfully, he's behind bars now, and I have real no way of knowing if he meant me. But having this happen so close to home has really shaken me. Uh, it's impossible at this point to go back in the closet, and I don't want to, even though being openly proud and transgender tends to paint a target on me. Um, I understand that fear is a consequence of this action and own that feeling. However, do you have any tips on living authentically while mitigating that fear in the face of an omnipresent societal threat? Uh, is there a way to harness this worry and channel it into a positive force rather than having it remain a constant drain on my motivation and commitment to education?
5: Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing this, Alex. I appreciate this question. You know, one of the unfortunate consequences of the politicization of everything is that we have scandalized legitimate and important concepts all in the name of scoring rhetorical points. One such concept is the concept of safety, the notion of safe, the notion of a safe space. You got people saying, well, you don't need to feel safe. Life isn't about having your little safe space and all this sort of stuff. But you know, when I go to sleep at night, I want to feel safe. I don't want every moment to feel like a daring adventure. I don't want every moment to feel like a risk. I don't want every moment to feel like a challenge. There are some moments where the most important thing is for me and my family to feel safe. And you never have to apologize for that. And you never have to accept anyone who tempts you to despise that or disregard that. You have the right to seek out spaces and moments where you can feel safe. And it's absolutely terrible That we live in a world where people can't see things differently without feeling the need to threaten your safety. That's unfortunate in terms of what we can do about that. Well, I like the Timothy Leary quote where he says, find the others. Who are the others? The others are not necessarily the people who think like you do about all things, but the others are people who have the capacity to celebrate and or challenge you without resorting to games of coercion and manipulation such people do exist. And when we have those moments where someone makes us feel unsafe or where someone disrespects us, it can be so easy to forget that such people do exist. I remember one time my wife and I, we were standing on Santa Monica Boulevard because we were out one night and there's this car that drove by and um, the the guy in the car looks at me and he says, N-word, I'm not making this up. And my wife and I looked at each other like, what? You know, as, as he drove off. And there was this white guy standing next to me and he says, man, don't you just wish there was this button you could push that opened up a hole in the ground so that people like that just fell in? And, and my wife and I and everybody uh, around us, we all laughed and says, yeah, that would be good to have right about now, right? <laughs> but that guy's presence was timely. We don't always get it like that, but you can be sure there are always people who don't think like the idiot that makes you feel unsafe. There are always people out there who don't support the guy that's threatening your life just because he has some issues within himself that he has not reconciled and made peace with. And so I would encourage you to step back and even in the midst of that fear, you can be honest about that fear, but to remember there are others and I would dare to find them. There are spaces where you can feel safe, spaces where you can feel supported, spaces where you can feel protected from the people like that who, because they don't know who they are, have to try to destroy in you what they haven't found in themselves. Yeah,
2: the the fear of change exposes our insecurities quite often. What you're seeing in this man, who thankfully is behind bars now, yeah. there was a deep insecurity there. Anyone who needs to lash out, we often hear it couched in terms like, Toxic masculinity, but it's really just toxic insecurity. People who try to act a particular way with a bravado or act tough, right? That's not acting like a man. That's acting like a little boy, right? And Alex, I I would say the same thing to you here is I understand you're going through some fear right now. And as an adult man, you also have to recognize that, yes, you do have a right to safety, we do live in a world that there are insecurities that'll come up. Security is a misnomer. We often talk about job security, right? Or, or we, however you want to define security, right? But you can't prepare for everything, you will always live in a world that has some variety and elements for, to be exposed to insecure scenarios. Now, it sounds to me, Alex, like you're not putting yourself in situations deliberately. to. Uh, you're not seeking out insecurity. But, of course, it's always going to be out there, right? And they're going to be people who dislike you for who you are, whether it is your identity, whether it's the color of your skin, or just the way your hair looks. Someone will dislike you for who you are, and it's not your job to get them to like you. You could you could spend all of the time in the world to try to get them to like you, and they might still hate you. Now, it is also true that. Sunlight is the biggest disinfectant. I find that people who dislike trans people have often never met one or certainly not spent an appreciable amount of time with a trans person. Someone who hates black people has not spent time with a black person. Someone who hates gay people doesn't even know a gay person. And so what do they do? They're afraid
5: of it and their insecurities come to the surface. That's right. I can disagree with you without disliking you. I can dislike you without (laughs) murdering you, right? I mean, there are layers to this game and and, and anybody that, that doesn't have the capacity to understand those things, these are not the sort of people that you want to build a life around, you know, uh, one other thing I'll, I'll throw into this is that um, we, we often hear it said that no matter where you go, you'll still be you, and you can't run from your life. And all of that's true, right? If you're if you lie to yourself in Chicago, moving to Missouri isn't going to change that. You've got to change the patterns within yourself. However, it is also true that sometimes new spaces, new environments. Can more readily facilitate changes that we want to make. Yes. You know, um, maybe if uh, you go through a tough breakup, for instance, right? Everything in that town reminds you of, you know, uh, who you used to be with and what you had. And maybe it can just be easier to heal if you go into a different space, right? And so I don't know what your capacities are, what all you have going on. It would be great if we could talk longer in more detail. But one thing I would consider is what are some opportunities for me to move into new spaces, whether they be physical, geographical spaces or social, mental, psychological spaces that allow me to facilitate that sense of security and safety that I need. Because when it comes down to it, you want to feel safe. And I can give you an argument that you are safe and someone can come along and they can be like, oh, well, here's the statistical unlikelihood that this and that. But at the end of the day, like, None of that matters if you don't feel safe, right? If you don't feel grounded and anchored. So where are the places you need to migrate to physically, psychologically, spiritually, in order for you to feel grounded in that sense of security that you need?
2: Yeah, a rose can grow better in a garden than on a sidewalk. And so finding your garden... From which you're going to thrive and grow. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be challenges or problems still. Gardens still get parasites and pests, and there's drought, and all kinds of things can happen in a garden, but what is that environment from which you can grow? I used to live right down the street from here over in Boys Town. It's like the gayest neighborhood in the country, right? And there's a reason a lot of gay men specifically moved to that neighborhood. And it's because wherever they were before, they felt isolated. They felt like a rose that couldn't grow through the concrete. And this was a garden that allowed them to grow, to allow them to be accepted so they could flourish as who they were. It wasn't about just an identity. It was like, Oh, I don't want to feel like I'm hated where I'm at. So I'm going to go to a place that gives me the place where I can actually be me. Alex, thank you so much for your question. Our next question today is from Crystal.
0: Hi Josh and Ryan. My name is Crystal. I'm from Chatham, Ontario in Canada. Uh, My question is about uh, work clutter. I feel like I've been able to use minimalism as a tool to help me in all the other areas of my life, but when it comes to my job or what I do for work, um, I'm a kindergarten teacher, I find myself accumulating a lot of stuff. Um, Sometimes as teachers, we have to switch grades uh, on a whim, and uh, we have to make or provide a lot of the materials in our room. So I make or buy things to use for one grade, then I might end up in another grade and I end up keeping the other stuff in case I end up in that grade again. And it's the only thing I have a large amount of clutter of. Um, Not even just teaching. My father is an electrician and he has a large amount of tools that he has to buy to do his job that his work won't pay for. So he has a large collection as well. Um, What do we do when... Our jobs and our workplaces uh, require us to have a lot of stuff, but we don't want to store it all. Thanks.
5: Yeah, this is a good problem here. So part the difference between the consumer mindset and the creativity mindset is that the consumer mindset says, my primary relationship to stuff is that of a buyer and a user. And the creativity mindset says my primary relationship to stuff is that of a creator, a value creator, a generous person. So in both cases, we still need to do some consumption to live, but are we defined by the things that we own or do we define the things that we own by how we use them and how we express generosity to others? And whenever you have things, like you mentioned that you, you have these things that you might make or acquire that are really useful at a certain point, but then there comes a point where you're moved to a different grade. And so now you have this stuff that you no longer need, but it's hard to throw away because maybe at some point in the future, you get moved back into that classroom. Well, who knows how long that's going to be, right? It could be one semester. It could be three years. It could be never. It's a just-in-case type thing. What if we connect it with other teachers? who are still teaching those grades and offered it to them and and open them up to some new possibilities. Because as a teacher, we all learn tricks that other people don't know. Hey, here's an exercise or an activity that's worked really well in my classroom. Is this something that you think you'd be interested in? And now you're no longer teaching the third grade, but someone else who's teaching the third grade gets a new tool that they get to use. And you have this assurance that, hey, What it was I acquired or created is going to good use. It's still creating value, and I don't have the storage problem. Sometimes sharing is the antidote to story.
2: Yeah, I think what you're talking about here is you're talking about turning clutter into tools. Because what happens, it's workplace clutter when it gets in the way. Otherwise, if you just have a lot of tools, but you're a mechanic and you use all of those tools, it's not actually clutter. Right. Right. It's only clutter when you're forced to, as you said, your father has a bunch of tools as an electrician. Okay, but it sounds like he's probably using those. And what you said, though, it threw up a red flag in my mind. His job requires him to buy the tools that they require him to have. Well, wait a minute. Is his job so broke that they can't afford to buy the tools for your father they require him to have. It's like when I think about a corporation that forces someone to pay for their own travel, even though they're forcing them to go on this trip on their own. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You don't have to say yes to that. And so these are all negotiable, right? I know you feel like your school is saying you have to have these things. Well, do you have to have them? Can you share them? Can you get them from someone else? Are you allowed to let go of them? Can they provide those things for you? If they're requiring you to do it, you must do this in order to be employed here. Great. I need you to provide that for me as well. And you may get some pushback, some resistance. Nope. This is always the way we've done it. Well, just because it's always the way we've done it is not a great
5: reason to keep doing it that way. That's right. And this, by the way, could be an opportunity to introduce some new possibilities to the school itself. You'd be amazed at how many times um, beautiful things come into existence, not because people demand them, but because someone had the courage to suggest it. There's an old saying, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but um, Henry Ford is claimed to have said, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have demanded a faster horse. It's not about demand. Creativity doesn't always come from demand. Sometimes it comes from the willingness to say, hey, here's an opportunity here that I think would improve what everyone is doing. And I'm gonna put it on the table and I'm gonna be vulnerable enough to risk the possibility of being rejected. Someone says, no, we don't want that. But in that risk, in that possibility, something new could open up. And so if you're working at a school and you're working with other teachers, Everyone has a need for tools. Everyone has a need for supplies. Everyone is always entertaining new techniques, new teaching strategies, things that can improve their game and make their job easier. This might be an opportunity to take advantage of a, of a discussion forum, a teaching board, whatever communication tool you use to even bring it up to the principal, the admin at the school and say, hey, is there a space or a place where we can not only communicate about things that we can share with each other, but where we can also store these at the school itself so that everyone can know we have like a teacher's library. And the same way that students who want books can go into the library and check it out without having to keep it at at their home, we can have a teacher's library of resources where we go to benefit from the things that other people have created that they don't need right now. That might be an opportunity. Here's one more question that's worth considering. What would happen if you went without
2: Just for a while. What if you went without for a day, for a week, for a month, for a year? Would you be depriving yourself? Would you be depriving the people around you? Your coworkers, your students, the people you're responsible for? Or would you find a better way to fill that space? If you didn't have all of the tools that you rely on right now, would you find a different way to get by? And if so, what would that do for your creativity? What would that do for your experience? Now, it might be true that that would be deprivation and it would actually get in the way. And so you would have reduction clutter. That's a different type of clutter where you feel like you're an ascetic and you must shun all of these things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply asking the question, what if you went without? You might realize that, oh, I have too much. And I already have enough and it could be okay to let go. Because I'll tell you this, that that admission is really expensive when clutter is the cost of admission. And so right now where you are with your career, they're saying you must have some clutter. You must have some things that get in the way. If you're willing to pay that cost, fine. But the reason you're calling into a show like this, you're like, this cost is pretty expensive for me. Not only am I paying with my money, but I'm paying with my time and my attention and my worry. And it's getting in the way of not just my work, but my students. And so what would happen if you went without?
5: You know, Josh, you can lose a lot of money trying to save money if you do so at the expense of your mental health and creative energy. When we moved, I had to let go of my favorite table. It was a table that we had on the balcony, everything about the aesthetics, the way it felt to to sit there. I loved it, but I couldn't move it with us. Why? Because it doesn't fit at our new place, period. It just doesn't fit. But you know what I could have done? I could have rightly reasoned, well, I might be in a different place in two years or three years and... If I walk into that new place and see an opportunity, I might be able to move the table in there. So why don't I save the money? Because I don't want to have to buy it back in the future. But you know what? It's not just about saving the money. What am I giving up right now for the next year, two years or three years to save that money? I'm giving up the time and the energy and the focus to be managing that table, making sure that it's stored and secured, making sure that the bill for that is paid, taking a chance on something. Whenever you save a just-in-case item, you can't fool yourself, you're betting on the future, you're taking a gamble. And guess what gamble you're not taking? You're not taking a gamble on what you can create from that same space if that energy is free and available because you weren't consuming it by managing something that you didn't know you were needed. Wealth comes from your creativity. It comes from your inner freedom. It comes from you being able to show up and show up strong. Never hang on to things that compromise your ability to show up strong in the way that you need to be. Our next question is from Miguel.
0: Hello. My name is Miguel, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I have a situation that I would love an outside perspective on. My partner enjoys taking MDMA at festivals, but I've expressed my discomfort about his drug use, and he initially agreed not to take it. Recently, he's told me that he's not willing to make that compromise anymore, and is firm on his stance that he wants to take it again. I told him that if he was going to be doing drugs, that I wouldn't be comfortable dating him, and he's been trying hard to convince me to change my perspective. We've reached a point in our relationship where I have to make my final decision, and I'm not sure if staying with him means that I'm sacrificing my own values because of attachment, or if leaving means that I'm holding on to too
2: many expectations. I think it could be both, Miguel. And so first thing I'd like to do with you, TK, is maybe we can remove the morality out of this through an analogy. Let's say that my wife always wanted to wear green pants, and I said... I hate green pants, right? And she says, well, I don't care. I really want to wear green pants. And the cost of being in this relationship with me is that I'm going to wear green pants. And I could say, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> the cost of being in a relationship with me is to not wear green pants. You can wear blue pants, it's fine. Black pants, gray pants, don't mind. But if you wear green pants, nope, doesn't work for me. Now, there are a couple problems here. One is I am manipulating her. I'm coercing her into fitting into my worldview. And I may even be taking a moral stance on this, right? I'm not comfortable with who you wear in green pants. You know green pants, they're actually bad. And they're immoral to wear for whatever reason, right? And I'm sure if you give me enough time, I can come up with a really good reason as to why green pants, they're bad for the environment. They're terrible for nature. They are
5: mocking particular cultures, whatever it is. Yeah, we can come up with something. There's probably some like ancient like mythological symbol that green represents something bad. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Just give me enough time. (laughs) And so what I'll say to Miguel is a coercive relationship
2: extends distinguishes the potentiality of love. Because when you're saying you shouldn't do this, well, what you're saying is I want to change who you are. And that's not what love is. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. Now, that's not to say that you're wrong either, Miguel. You're not wrong for disliking drug use. You have a preference here. And there's a difference between morality and preferences, Right? The truth is, I don't like the green pants. It's not really wrong that she wears them. But the question for me then, if my wife wanted to wear green pants every day, I have to make a choice because I'm not going to try to change her. I'm not going to show her that her pants are wrong or bad because I have a particular preference. In fact, I'm not going to batter her with my preferences. And unfortunately, Miguel, that's what's happening here. You are battering your partner with your, preferences. And what you're saying is, yeah, I don't want you to do that. And you're okay for not wanting him to do that, but to try to change him or worse, provide an ultimatum. Because here's what happens when you provide an ultimatum. They will assimilate and they will conform to your ultimatum until it reaches a tipping point. Or it may never reach that tipping point, but you know what they're going to pick up along the way? Little bricks of resentment. And every day that goes by, a new brick of resentment comes up. And every missed opportunity, another brick of resentment gets picked up. And so over the course of a year, two years, five years, your partner is going to be hauling a giant burden of resentment because they want things to be one way and you want it to be another way. Yeah.
5: Shout out to your partner for his sake and yours. When, when it comes to them being honest with you. Because what it sounds like, it doesn't sound like they 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 did an about face or lied to you. What it sounds like is when you first expressed the problem, they told you a combination of what you wanted to hear and what he thought he could live with. And that's something that we often do in relationships, right? We see that something is important to our significant other. It's not that important to us, but you know what? precisely because it's not that important to me, I probably can compromise that if it makes you happy. But over time, after reflecting on it and experiencing it a little more, he realized, "Uh uh-oh, this is something that I want to be a part of my life. It's more important to me than I realize. And you know what he could have done? He could have chosen to keep lying to you and live a double life, doing that in secret. And there are ways to keep that kind of stuff alive without you ever knowing. Or he could have... Try to suppress that in the name of making you happy and end up causing more pain to the both of you in the future. So as frustrating as it may be for you, blessed is the day that your partner looked you in the eye and said, you know what? I can't lie. This is going to be a part of my life because where you go from here is going to be a much healthier road than what the alternative would have been. Second thing I'll say is there's a difference between a standard and an expectation, an expectation is what you demand of somebody else. A standard is what you demand of yourself. You know, I have the right to have whatever standards I want and say, hey, in any relationship that I'm in, I'm just not going to be talked to in this kind of way. That's my choice. And it's going to cost me something. And I'm I'm cool with that. Uh, an, an expectation is when you say, I demand that you do this and I'm going to try to threaten you and, and, and manipulate you and and so on. You don't have to make a demand on someone else in order to have standards. Your standards are their own demand and people can make their own choices and you respect the right that they have to make their own choice. As Josh said, it could be both. This could be a situation where it's as simple as, hey, you got the answers. It's just about acknowledging the truth. He's not willing to compromise for you. You're not willing to compromise for him. If these two things are true non-negotiables for you, you know what it is. You're incompatible right. at that point. Right, right. And and so the way
2: that you identify the, whether or not you can compromise on those things is you figure out where they are in your values hierarchy. The yeah. green pants example, that's actually a real example. I would be a little flabbergasted if Bex all of a sudden started wearing green pants every day. It would be totally against her character. but that would be merely a surface value of mine. Aesthetics are a a surface value. And so I do value aesthetics, but some people, it would actually be an imaginary value because it's, oh, I want to control someone else. And I think that gets to the heart of Miguel's question. And what he's contemplating right now is why do you not want your partner to use MDMA, right? Now I'd be a little Flabbergast as well, if Beck started using MDMA regularly, right? Because there are some certain downsides to that. I want to be clear about that. There are no solutions. There are only trade-offs, Thomas Sowell, right? And the trade-off here is you're giving up a lot of your, your serotonin. You're depleting your happiness from tomorrow. You're borrowing your happiness from tomorrow for some sort of blissful experience today. And I don't think there's anything morally wrong with that, but it can be It can be addictive to the point where you feel as though you're constantly pleasure-seeking. And so you may want better for your partner, right? Yeah, you might want that. But he might not want that for him. And so understanding that, oh, wait a minute. I want something different from my partner. I value something different. Where does that align in your values hierarchy? If your value is my foundational value is I don't want to be with anyone who does any type of drugs whatsoever. Okay, well, how stringent are you going to get about that? Because I drink coffee every day, right? That's a drug. Mm. So where do you draw your line and why do you draw your line there? Did society just hand you some sort of prescription and say, well, here are the good drugs. Here are the bad drugs. You should be able to do this, but you shouldn't be able to do this. Why do you feel the way that you feel? Can you examine that? Why don't you want him to do this? And there might be great reasons, but you might not know. And it might get to the point where you say, no, we're totally compatible. I just realized that I don't have this as a foundational value for me. It's a preference and I'm allowed to have my preferences and there's nothing wrong with those preferences, but it doesn't make us incompatible just because
5: we like different flavors of ice cream. Yeah. And and I think what I'm getting out of what you're saying is whether you stay together or part ways, understanding will be the thing that makes both of those decisions a little bit easier. Because if you stay together, you're gonna to need to have some understanding. If we're using the green pants analogy, I would be asking, hey, Bex, why do you love wearing green pants? This is important for us to find out. What do green pants do for you? If they're if there's such an issue, we should know, you know? Um, and at the same time, why do you hate them? What's the problem with that? Like this is valuable. If if there's a relationship that's on the edge over someone wearing green pants. That's clearly important enough to get curious about and talk about. Maybe you break up, maybe you stay together, but you'll do it healthier with an understanding that says, all right, I know something about what's important to you that I didn't previously know because it's not about the green pants. It's not about the drug. It's about a deeper value system. Last thing, and it's also not just about right and wrong and what the other person can do and all that. It's also about what you can handle. Be honest with yourself about what you can handle because you can say all the right things about another person's right to do whatever they wanna do. But if you can't handle that, it's best to be honest with yourself about that and not try to pretend to be something that you're not in the name of being tolerant or being open-minded. Because that's
2: where that resentment shows up as well. That's right. Because you can't change the other person. If you do try to change them, they'll resent you. But also if you contort and manipulate yourself so much that you've compromised your values, you will resent the other person. Alabama, we're going to turn into, tune into some social media questions. I'm going to skip Breeze question. We'll move that to next week because I want to be able to get Ryan on the phone here in a moment. But we have a question here from Heather on Instagram.
3: I don't fully agree with your idea that if you have to charge something to a credit card, you cannot afford it. My household almost exclusively uses credit cards for cash back rewards. As long as we stick to our budget and are intentional with our spending... Is it so wrong to use credit cards?
2: Heather, the truth does not require consensus for it to remain true. Mm, Shots fired, man. I didn't say you shouldn't use credit cards. She's responded to a video that we put up on Instagram. And I talk about five questions to ask before buying. And one of those questions is, can I afford it? Mm. And here's a hint. If you have to charge it to a credit card, you can't afford it. Now, I didn't say if you do charge it to a credit card, I'm very deliberate with the words I use. If you have to charge it to a credit card, by definition, you can't afford it. Now, if you have a credit card and you pay it off every month, I'm not the credit card police. I'm not going to show up at your door and say you shouldn't do that because, well, I don't really care. But if you have, To charge something to a credit card, that means you have to go into debt. If you have to go into debt, you can't afford the thing that you're purchasing. It's not a moral stance. I don't think it's wrong to go into debt. I just prefer not to go into debt because I like my freedom. I don't want to punish my future self to pay for something today.
5: Right. You're not addressing a scenario where someone might say, hey, I want to build credit and here's a little $50 purchase. I've got the cash in pocket to pay it, but I'm going to deliberately use my credit card just so I can get that payment on the record. I'm going to add that extra step as a way of building my credit without even saying you should or shouldn't do that. That would be an example of someone not having to use a credit card, but choosing to use one as part of some broader financial strategy that they have, which is what it sounds like her situation is. She has this Conscious, intentional strategy for how she wants to use credit cards. She prioritizes the cash rewards and so on, works it out in her budget and doesn't seem to be in a position where she's making a bunch of purchases that she clearly can't afford and has to use a credit card to finance. That that makes sense. That's, uh, that's pretty clear. You know, another thing I say too is that, you know, is it right or is it wrong? It's best to leave something like that in the realm of what's best for the individual and i i appreciate a lot of the education that's been done to teach people about how the credit card game is played from the banker's perspective because we're giving we're given this free money and this pla- this piece of plastic and it's so easy to swipe and there's so many people that are destroying their lives because they have no concept of how interest works or just the basics of finance and credit cards are destroying a lot of people because you give people that kind of power without the education. It's really, really damaging. And so I'm thankful that that education is out there. And for someone who um, feels like, hey, it's not destroying my life. It's enhancing my life. I don't think the two sides need a war against each other in order to acknowledge that.
2: Now, there was one word in her question that exposed
5: a whole lot though, right? Uh
2: Heather said, my household... Almost exclusively uses credit cards for cashback rewards, which also means that we don't always use credit cards for cashback rewards. What are the other instances that you use credit cards for? Is it because you want something now and you can't afford it right now? And so you're going to charge it to a credit card? If so, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to show up at your door. But even the cashback rewards, let's think about that. Why do banks do that? Is it because they're benevolent and they want to shower you with gifts and prizes? (laughs) Or is it because they want to tempt you to go into debt so they can charge you interest on the money? So your $100 purchase can become a $150 purchase over the long haul. Or maybe you miss a payment accidentally and now you get a late fee. Oh, were they being benevolent then? Or... Did they want to simply extract the money from
5: your wallet. By the way, this brings up a, a broader issue that comes up a lot. And that is being able to make a distinction between cause and effect on one hand and personal priorities on the other. We had a guest on this very show who at one point really piqued my interest because he started riffing on coffee and he started talking about some of the things that coffee does to you that you might not like. And when he was describing those things, I was thinking, "Mm, I don't like the description. I don't like what that does. Now, that's different, though, from him saying, get that cup of coffee out of here. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to drink coffee anymore. Or if you continue drinking coffee in spite of what I just told you, you're an insane man who doesn't care about health. No, it's complex, not necessarily complicated. But we've got a couple of things in here. All right. Cost-benefit analysis, right? How, how big is that cost to my health by drinking this cup of coffee? What am I living for? How much do I value the benefit? Every time I get into a car, I'm taking the risk of dying by accident. It's safer to just stay in the house. But that's not what helps me make decisions. You make decisions in life by thinking about your own priorities, your own preferences, your own values, and you've got to figure out for you what's best for you, not just based on someone's description of what a thing means, but also based on what are the effects I want to produce in my life? What are the elements of pain I have a high toleration for? What are the things I'm willing to give up or put up with in order to get what's most attractive to me?
2: Alabama. What time is it?
3: You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok.
2: Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Now, during the lightning round, We each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers if you'd like. You can find them all in one place over at theminimalists.com. You can find the show notes over there. Now, Ryan Nicodemus was supposed to be with us for this segment. In fact, we just recorded this segment with him. But he was having some internet troubles and it kept going to static right in the moment of his crescendo. The minimal maxim was working. And all of a sudden you heard. <sighs> so we'll try to get Nicodemus to join us again next week. We had to scrap that. But don't worry. We're here to answer Catherine's question. Catherine has something from TikTok.
3: How do we resist impulse purchases when people around us say life is short? So why not just buy it?
2: Why not just buy it? Well, Nicodemus had this great maximum. And since he's not here to say it, I'm going to say it for him. And then I'll save mine for a moment. But he said, today's impulse purchases are tomorrow's regrets. I think that's one of the big problems with impulse purchases. It starts when you're at the checkout line and you see the candy bar right there. And it's, oh, it'd be so delicious. I need this momentary gustatory pleasure. And then... thinking, am I going to regret this tomorrow? Am I going to regret this a week from now? Am I going to form a habit now that Mm. requires me to keep purchasing things on impulse? And what does that really do? It takes me out of the moment. Impulse, yes, I feel that impulse in the moment, but then when it becomes habitual and I buy that candy bar every time I'm at the grocery store, I'm no longer enjoying it because it's just something I'm supposed to do. And I take it out of the wrapper and I scarf it down really quickly. And that pleasure that I once got has become an obligation or a duty. Mm. And now, oh, my love handles are paying for it. <laughs> Let's get 60
5: seconds on the clock for TK Coleman. What do you got for us, TK? Life is too short to sell yourself short. Chris Rock has this bit where he talks about how people use the phrase, life is short, to justify making any impulsive decision whatsoever. And his whole thing is, life is short, you better hope it is, because you're going to have to live with that decision for a long time. Life is long when you make self-defeating decisions. If you want to be on the fast track to living a life that feels like you're in a prison of misery that's never going to end, then orient your existence around everyone else's priorities and principles beside your own There's a reason why we say time flies when you're having fun, because when you're living from your core, when you're being congruent with your convictions and doing what is true to you, you connect with this sense of timelessness. You're in that flow state. You transcend time and you're acting from a place of joy. You're in the now moment and you don't make decisions out of fear. You say yes to things because it makes you feel alive, not because someone else says life is too short for you to say no. Mm, Yeah,
2: spot on. Catherine, let me say this to you. Silence is the best explanation. You don't have to explain yourself to anyone. If your friends think you should buy something, but you feel like it's not gonna add value to your life, maybe this isn't the best use of this money. Maybe you feel like, I just can't afford it right now. You don't have to explain yourself to your friends. And by the way, if they're really your friends, if they really love you, care about you, support you, they don't need an explanation. Alabama, you got something else for us?
3: I sure do. It's time for TK's Tweet of
2: the Week. Well, this is, <laughs> this is actually the thread of the week. I put this in the show notes because, well, I was wrong. And so I tweeted this from my Threads account. And here's what I had to say. I hated episode 400 of the Minimalist podcast when we recorded it. My OCD flared when it deviated from our typical format, but I just re-listened and I realized that I was wrong. This episode is a vulnerable exploration of the fears associated with endings, new beginnings, and letting go. Now we dove deep in episode 400. It was 4 hours long, the private podcast version, and Afterward, I feel like I hated it. We were just talking to Ryan about this when we tried to record this segment the first time. And uh, real bummer about Montana's internet. Come on, Montana, get some internet.
3: The mountains are too tall.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, we'll we'll bring Ryan back in the future to talk about, uh, we'll talk about plenty of things. But right now I wanted to talk about that episode. And what I realized is, yes, we deviated from our typical format, which I really enjoy. So episode 401, TK, I even told you like, man, I hated our last episode. And, but then I went back and re-listened to it. And I listened to all of it. And it was this exploration. And we went places we wouldn't typically go. Yeah. And the analogy that came to mind, it was like a really beautiful song, like a John Mayer song, who's a very talented guitar artist, guitarist, and singer-songwriter as well. I listen to his music for the singer-songwriter aspects, the conventional songwriting, but also occasionally I'll turn on a song and there's like a two-minute guitar solo. Now, if every John Mayer song was a 10-minute guitar solo, I don't think I would listen to those songs because it wouldn't be for me. But sometimes in the middle of a song, you break out into that guitar solo. And this episode, episode 400, was our guitar solo. It allowed us to deviate Mm. from the actual structure and explore, which is exactly what happens
5: during a, a guitar solo. And I think the people felt that. I think the people resonated real strongly with it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. The feedback bowled me over. I was so overwhelmed <laughs> by the feedback too. Yeah. I listened to the episode before we got the feedback, but then we got the feedback and it just confirmed that change of heart that I had myself.
5: Yeah. You know what it reminds me of? My analogy. You went with John Mayer. I'll go with uh, Will Smith, the movie Hitch, where he is so smooth. He coaches other people on how to socialize, but he has a moment where he needs to bail himself out of a situation. He gets himself into a a uh, troublesome situation, and now he's got to win the girl back. And so here's the smooth guy that always has the right words for every moment. When he's staring her face to face, he tries to say what's on his heart and he's just, uh, 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 and he can't get the words out. And you can just see all of her defenses breaking down and she's just totally won over by him because his lack of words isn't due to a lack of professionalism or a lack of preparation. It's because he is so deeply into his heart He's trying to utter something that his preparation hasn't prepared him for. Mm. And I feel like we had a moment like that. Like, it's not a lack of professionalism. It's not a lack of preparation. But we were in our hearts for that episode. And what we were saying, it wasn't something that we were prepared for. It wasn't something that we could have prepared for. And I think people connect with that kind of authenticity. It was the guitar solo. It was the improv. And you wouldn't want to do that every episode either. I mean, A, it'd be really draining,
2: But also (laughs) the reason an episode like that is so special is because it does deviate from the standard format and Mm -hmm. the standard expectations and the standards of the show itself. It's, hey, let's set these aside for a moment. We need to explore this area for a while. And I thought we did that really well. So shout out to Ryan. I'm sorry you couldn't be here today. I'm sorry we're re-recording this without you. But as soon as you get that internet fixed, he's, he's actually at his in-laws right now and they live way, way out there. And so as soon as he's at his place in Missoula, I'm sure we'll have better internet and we'll bring him back on to the podcast many, many more times. And whenever he's in LA, obviously, as well. We'll check in with our Patreon live stream in a moment. But first, real quick for... Right here, right now. Here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. It's time to celebrate our first documentary, Minimalism, which was seen by more than 80 million people on Netflix. It just got a second life on YouTube. Really, it's its third life because we did a theatrical release as well, and then the Netflix release. And now it's on YouTube over on the Minimalist YouTube channel. 100% commercial free, advertisement free. Here's the celebration point. It's already the most popular video on our YouTube channel. We have over a thousand videos on that YouTube channel and millions of you now have seen this documentary again. Incredible. It really is I, staggering. I knew this would be great for the long haul, the long tail of the documentary, but I didn't know so many people would gravitate toward it once again. And there's a lot of timeless wisdom in that film. We filmed it. A lot of the, the parts we filmed, I was, I think, 32 years old when we filmed many of those scenes. I'm 42 now, but the film holds up so well. You can watch it for free. Yeah. If you do enjoy it, you can just give it a thumbs up. Well, why does that help us? I usually don't ask people to like and subscribe and all those other things. Leave a comment as well. We turned the ads off. And so the algorithm doesn't like us. <laughs> but if you like us, then all you have to do is like us. There you go. And that'll put in the algorithm so <laughs> other people can see the message of living with less every well, the first Friday of every month, we've been doing something we call FAMS—the Friday afternoon minimalist zooms. You can have a Zoom call with the minimalist. Ryan joins us, me, Ryan TK, Alabama is usually there. We've got Professor Sean, Danny, Unknown is there as well, and we're interacting with you face to face. Man, I've been enjoying these.
5: Oh man, it's been such a good time. It keeps getting better because we don't know what questions are coming. We don't know what's on people's hearts and minds. It's dictated by the moment. And the sidebarring in the chat discussion just keeps heating up. People are connecting with each other. We're having amazing conversations. Malabama is in there just having a ton of fun. It's, it's it's awesome. It's it's a true hangout fest. And she's collecting some
2: questions and comments that we can't address on those FAMS sessions. Yep. First Friday of every month, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you subscribe to the video version over at patreon.com slash The Minimalist. You can have that call with us and we record it and post it afterward if you can't attend the actual session. But yeah, I know you had a question or a comment from the last one we did.
3: Yeah, this was a comment from Haley. I just finished the Simplify Everything course. It's been a fun and trying way of keeping myself accountable Accountable. I've found it especially helpful since we just moved, so now I can be more mindful as we get settled into our new home.
2: Oh, that's beautiful! I've yeah. gotten so much great feedback from. We did this this course called Simplify Everything. It's not available, so you can't buy it right now. So I feel okay talking about it right now. Uh, but if you want to know next time, it's available. Simplify Everything. You can just put your email address in there. It's five weeks, five different types of clutter. Every week, we give you like three different videos addressing that particular kind of clutter, whether it's physical clutter, we start with physical clutter, digital clutter, calendar clutter, relationship clutter, money clutter, and we give you a bunch of practical solutions, the how-tos of simplifying your life. Now, it's not just the how-tos, because yeah, with some mechanical things like finances, how-tos work. But it's also understanding the why behind all of that. So, simplify everything. XYZ. If you're interested in learning more about that course, we'll check back in with those Patreon live stream questions, the Zoom questions here in a little bit. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us?
3: Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners.
7: This is Chelsea from Camus Washington, and I would like to read an excerpt from one of my favorite books, The Midnight Library, by Matt Haig, which I often think about when I struggle with identity clutter. Here it is. It is easy to mourn the lives we aren't living. Easy to wish we developed other talents, said yes to different offers. Easy to wish we'd worked harder, loved better, handled our finances more astutely been more popular, stayed in the band, gone to Australia, said yes to the coffee or done more bloody yoga. It takes no effort to miss the friends we didn't make and the work we didn't do and the people we didn't marry and the children we didn't have. It is not difficult to see yourself through the lens of other people and to wish you were all the different kaleidoscopic versions of you they wanted you to be. It is easy to regret and keep regretting ad infinitum until our time runs out. But it is not lives we regret not living that are the real problem. It is the regret itself. It's the regret that makes us shrivel and wither and feel like our own and other people's worst enemy. We can't tell if any of those other versions would have been better or worse. Those lives are happening, it is true. But you are happening as well. And that is the happening we have to focus on.
2: Welcome back, y'all. Malabama, what else you got from that Patreon live stream Zoom call that we had?
3: We have a question here from Brianna. Family and friends who know me well, including my mom who passed 12 years ago, tell me that teaching is my calling. But over the last three years, I've realized that it's not my calling because it negatively affects me emotionally, mentally, and physically. How might you guide someone in finding a new calling that still allows them to help people?
2: TK, what are your thoughts on
5: someone who has a calling? Yeah, first, beware of the follow your potential advice because although it is valuable and conveys something deeply meaningful, it can also be a trap. When other people talk about your potential, they're talking about your, they're talking about, when other people talk about your potential, they're talking about their idea of you. And sometimes your idea for how you want to live your life may not be consistent with someone else's idea of what would best fulfill your potential. I could say, Josh, man, you should be making action movies, man. Like you're not living up to your potential. Well, do you care about that? Do you want to live up to that? As far as the calling to be a teacher is concerned, I, I think a calling is very different from a job job is what you do for pay it's what you do for a living but calling your vocation it's it's what beckons your soul you know what compels you and being a teacher is about so much more than working for a school being a teacher is about helping people find what they need and it's a it's a role it's a role that we play that doesn't have to be tied to a specific occupation what what i do is teach but i'm not at a school And so I I think we have to think about these things in a bigger way. And and when you uncouple your concept of calling from a job that you think you gotta have, then you're free to create new ways to influence people, to inspire people, to help them, to support them. And it doesn't really matter what you call that, but as long as you're doing that thing that gives you that energy, you know?
2: Yeah, I'm thinking about, um, well, I've got a couple different tracks that I might want to go down here. But I'm thinking about when I started a publishing company back in 2012 with Ryan Nicodemus and, and um, Colin Wright. it's called Asymmetrical Press. And we started signing other authors. Sean Mahalik was one of them. And at one point, we had published books from nine different authors. And I realized I was good at doing that, but I didn't want to do it. Mm. I... Just because you're good at something, you have a particular skill set, doesn't mean that it is your calling necessarily, right? Just because you're good. At, I was really good at managing retail stores. I managed 150 of them. But I didn't enjoy doing the thing that I was yeah. doing, even though I was like the best at it. And I can say that not with a sense of hubris, but with a sense of almost like, depression because it's like, oh, I'm so good at this, but I don't enjoy it. It's just like you think about the seven foot guy who doesn't like basketball at all. And everyone's like, oh, you should play basketball. My wife is 5'10". Everyone told her like, oh, why don't you play basketball? You should have played basketball. And she's like But I don't like to play basketball. So was that her calling? No, because Your calling has something to do. And by the way, there isn't one calling. You weren't predestined to be one thing. But there's a skill set that you might have. But it also has to be married with the thing that you enjoy, that lights you up, that makes you feel alive. Otherwise, it's certainly not your calling. Yeah. TK, I got some talk aboutables for you today. Let's talk about them. Well, a few episodes ago, we talked about the 80-20 rule. I wanted to expand on that because I think it goes well beyond our time, which you often talk about the 80-20 rule with respect to our time. How am I spending my time? But the 80-20 rule applies to almost everything Hmm. in our lives. 20% of your clothes you wear 80% of the time. That means 20% of your shirts, you wear 80% of the time. 20% of your pants, you wear 80% of the time. 20% of your accessories, of your jewelry, of your handbags, of your watches, you wear 80% of the time. 20% of the things you own is what you use 80% of the time. One might even say that 20% of your friends are who you spend 80% of your time with. 20% of the things that you focus on have 80% of the significance or the importance in your life. Mm. It's not that the other 80% of the things that we wear, the things that we do, the friends in our lives are bad sometimes we hold on to relationships, or we certainly hold on to old clothes, old furniture, old kitchen appliances, old sheets and towels and and blankets and hygiene products, accessories that we're holding on to just in case. We never use those things, or we use them so rarely that they've become cluttered. And so why not? appreciate the 20% of the things that we use more and really expand on those. Maybe it could be not the 80-20 rule, but 20% of my things that I own, I get rid of all those other things that are in the way. Now, all of a sudden, I just use 100% of my things because that other
5: 80%, I got it out of the way. That right there is the power of minimizing, man. That has done wonders for me professionally. When I realize that 80% of the value I was creating was coming from only 20% of the things I was doing, it made me step back and say, well, why is that only 20%? Mm -hmm. Why am I wasting so much energy and effort doing things where I am highly replaceable? And then I just started to focus on those things. What are those things that make me indispensable? What are those areas where I'm difficult to replace? Can I make that 30%? Can I make that 50%? Can I negotiate that upward to 80%? And when you do that, you're saying no to meetings. You're saying no to things that you may not be great at. And it looks like you're just saying no, but after a while, you started to show up really, really powerfully in those areas where you're getting the value from. And so it's like, You actually get to get more out of that 80%. Yeah, and it made me also
2: start to question the other 80%. Why am I clinging to this other 80%? Just because it's volume and it's there, but I'm not getting any use out of it. And if it turns out that 20% of my clothes I'm wearing 80% of the time, it's probably also true that those 20% of the clothes that I wear, I could wear 100% of the time. And I could just let go of everything else that I don't enjoy as much. Another talk aboutable for you here, TK. We look for answers in all the wrong places. Uh-oh. Google does not have answers. Questions of the heart. Check out this beautiful song from Nick D. When the sun goes down All the memories of you,
1: you, you start coming on up make you proud, knowing that hurting me didn't hurt you that much, Well, did you lie right to my face or did your mind just change, that spot you chose to hit was on my blind side babe, and I googled what to do when a heart breaks, and had to slow down your heart rate, and how the hell do I get over her, when the sun goes down, I
2: Oh, so good. I Googled what to do when a heart breaks
5: and how do I get over her. Man, you're not going to find answers there. Yeah, man. I think about the Speed quote. quotes, one of my favorites. He says, there are secret places inside the human heart that know nothing of the outside world. And part of our job in life is to learn how to go within for ourselves so that we can unearth those inner treasures. And Google, it can give you exposure to a whole bunch of ideas that other people think but it cannot put you in touch with those answers that can only come from within. There is a voice that speaks, a still small voice that speaks, and you can only hear it when you quiet all the external voices, including the ones that are coming in as Google search results.
2: I heard Erwin Raphael McManus say something recently. He'll be back on the podcast soon. He was talking about one of the ways to deal with the fear that we have, the uncertainty of the future is... Uh, To stop listening to ourselves and start telling ourselves. And Mm. he made this interesting distinction. Quite often I'm listening to myself and I'm being battered by my own thoughts, Mm. the own stories that I'm telling myself, right? And the other side of it is like, well, maybe I could tell myself my own story, Here is what is going to happen that is empowering as opposed to all of these voices that are in my head that are just beating me up. And that's what I think love songs or breakup songs like Nick D's song, they do really well is they capture that human spirit, that emotion. And we're out there looking for answers, whether it's on Google or I'm going to a podcast or a friend. I need some advice. Right. But sometimes there is no advice. Most of the time, there is no advice. The answer happens to be in the question itself. What do you do when a heart breaks? Man, there's not a three-step plan to repair your heart.
5: Yeah, sometimes when we look for answers, we're really looking for an escape. An escape from the wrestling match with uncertainty. An escape from experience that just has to be lived through. And, you know, that's what makes you human, man. That's what makes you a person of substance. You go through heartbreak, you go through some challenges, you just got to live through it. And answers can't save you from the fact that life has to be lived through, you know?
2: UG Krishnamurti says, you actually don't want answers. You just want to play around with the question.
5: <laughs>
2: that's good. <laughs> I and like that. I think that's what a song captures here, right? Because by playing around with the question what are you really doing? You're finding a different kind of answer. You're recognizing the answer is that there is no specific answer here. And that's one of the beautiful things about music, whether it's Nick D's song or any other love song. and You'll actually notice that a lot of songs are written in second person. It's one of the rare mediums that is written mostly in second person. Hmm. An occasional novel will be, like uh, Jay McInerney, he had a book in the 80s called Bright Lights Big City and the whole thing is written in second person and it's like you went to the club you ate this meal you did a line of coke or whatever it's like all of a sudden you are the main character in the book and other times uh, there will be moments where they write from a second person perspective. But usually when you read a book, it's first person or it's third person. It's I, me, here's who I am, I'm the main character, or I'm writing about Professor Sean, he is the main character here. But when you write in second person, there's this mirror that's almost held up. And yeah. I love you, I appreciate you, I wanna be with you, I can't live without you. Uh, my wife's podcast, How to Love, we had this segment that was called "Terrible Love," and it was about the terrible love advice that you would get from songs, like really great songs. And the final episode, in fact, we played uh, "Boys to Men," "The End of the Road." Yeah, and that final episode, we also tweezed out like how awful it would be to just take advice from all of these love songs, even some of the most beautiful songs. They're not actual advice. It's how I'm feeling right now in the moment. It's all the clinging and the tension and the resentment and the anger and the frustration and the guilt. It's not advice. It's an observation of here's how I am. Here's what it means to be a human being. And you don't want to prescribe that to anyone, but you do want to witness it. You want to play around with the question. You don't want the answer. One more talk about for you, TK. I got a video for you. How many junk drawers do you need and which junk drawer items should we hold on to just in case? Check out this video.
4: I'm just going to throw out some of this junk and make some space. should I throw out this vacuum cleaner operating instructions that we've got for a vacuum cleaner that we've been using for the last five years and haven't looked at the instructions at all? I mean, I guess it does make quite good reading. Should we keep it just in case we need to troubleshoot some of the functions that we haven't used this entire time? Yeah, we'll keep it just in case we need to troubleshoot some of the functions. Yeah, chuck that back in there. Oh, fuck up. <laughs>
2: Now, this is one of the most honest videos that I've seen about junk drawers and just-in-case items, because this is ultimately what we do. It's not a junk drawer. It's an eff it drawer. I don't want to deal with this right now, so eff I'm just going to throw it in the drawer, and I'll punish my future <laughs> self to deal with it later. I recently bought a countertop reverse osmosis filter, hmm. and There was an instruction manual in there. And my wife's like, how long do you want to hold on to this? I'm like, not at all. Not ever. Because A, I don't think I'm going to need it. And even if I do need it, it's accessible
5: online. Yeah, yeah, I love that, man. (laughs) Don't throw it in an F it folder. Sometimes I suppose you can afford to say F it, but that's the question you got to ask yourself, right? Can I afford to say F it? Because sometimes when you say F it, to the stuff you choose to keep it around, you're saying effort it to your future.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and the opposite can also be true. Sometimes I do need to hold on to something just for when I actually need it. Maybe yeah. I even have an emergency item. Yeah, I had to use jumper cables recently. Thank, Thankfully, it wasn't me. It was Ryan who had, had them. And uh, because my car died and I was on Mulholland Drive and my car died oh. and I needed a jump. And so I didn't even have cables on me. So the person who was there next to me, I couldn't get them to jump me because they didn't have jumpers in their car. I didn't have jumper cables in my car. And so I called up Ryan and he drove over and he gave me a jump. He had that emergency item. An emergency item is something you hope you'll never have to use, but you hold on to it in case of emergency. I've never needed a manual in case of an emergency. I've never needed an accessory cord in case of an emergency. Now, you may get rid of something, and it becomes inconvenient. I saw a meme recently. It said, the prophecy has been fulfilled, was the caption on it. And it was a news story of a guy. It was a fake news story. In fact, Danny, I'll send you the image. You can put it up on the screen so people could see it. I'm just going to summarize it here, though. And it basically said, uh, Man who kept a piece of wood in his garage in 1982 finally found a use for it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what happens. It's like, yeah, you might on a long enough timeline find a use for it. But that man was burdened for 41 years with this excess. And by the way, how many other things that weren't that one thing that he used did we hold on to? You saw that junk drawer in that video and just full of a bunch of things that will never be used. And if you got rid of all of them right now, yes, you might get rid of one thing that you need to replace in the future. Probably not, but even if so, fine, replace it. But you've gotten rid of all those things that are just sort of getting in the way, weighing you down, being a burden, not just physically and and aesthetically, I mean, an aesthetic nightmare, but they are a burden psychologically because I'm always thinking about, oh, I've got to deal with that junk drawer. I know I said, F it a year ago, a decade ago. I have a friend who moved recently. He was like, I have so many things, not only that I didn't remember I owned, but I don't even remember the experience Mm. that I had At which I purchased the thing. Mm. Like I I had a, a press pass from this event. I don't even remember going to the event. I remember that I was supposed to go. I don't remember anything that happened there. But now I have a press pass. What should I do with that? And if it was just one press pass, that's not the problem. It's the tens of thousands of things just like that that we hold on to. That become the problem. One item by itself is never the burden. When people call into the show or they send a message in, they're like, but I've got this one crucifix that my mother had uh, from 30 years ago. Should I keep it? That's not the problem. If you're talking about one specific item, that's almost never the problem. It's the aggregate of all of the burdens. When you go to the the beach, it's not one pebble of sand that you get buried by, right? Yeah. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of grains of sand that
5: bury us. It's funny, though, because if I brought a box to your place and I just dumped it on your doorstep and says, hey, man, uh, some press passes from events I went to in the past, some business cards, some cool people that I've met, some uh, brochures from some really awesome places I've been to, hang on to it, brother. That won't move you at all. Even yeah. though it's a bunch of stuff with a bunch of stories behind them mm-hmm. because they're not your story. Mm. You know, you don't you don't own the story behind them.
2: Yeah, but
5: I could
2: own a new story that makes those items disempowering for me too. I could say, yeah. oh, well, TK is famous and I really like him. <laughs> and I can imagine that if someone like David Foster Wallace, my favorite author, if someone dropped off a box of his junk at my house, That would be so. It'd be more intriguing to me than if some random guy just named Dave Wallace walking down the street dropped off the same exact box. Well, why is that? It simply has to do with the story I've told myself. Yeah, that's how I end up getting perceived value from it. Right? Is oh yeah, that uh, that box was it was associated with David Foster Wallace. And then if I find out two years later that it wasn't, that's all a lie.
0: Mm.
2: then my story changes. Nothing about the materials in that box changed, though. The only thing that changed was my understanding of the story.
5: Little, Little lesson from true crime. The secrets that you bury will eventually come back to bury you. The problem, however, is that we so associate secrets with scandals that the only kind of secrets we think we keep are the embarrassing or shameful things we've done in our past. But things can also become secrets that we keep. We disconnect from the why, we forget about why they really matter, we're no longer using them and so we bury them and they become little secrets, but they'll eventually come back to bury us because those things take up energy, they take up space, they take up mind share, and they, they become this invisible source of burden just because they're just sitting there in boxes, not serving our lives. You cannot afford to have your life cluttered up by things That don't serve you.
2: And those burdens, those secrets, they bring a a certain amount of shame with them as well. Some guilt. Yeah. And we feel ashamed or embarrassed is maybe a better way to think about it, right? I was in the sauna yesterday. And whenever I'm in the sauna, I do two things regularly. I meditate and I listen to Zen garden music. Nice. I'll go in there for 25 minutes. Yeah. And I turn on the Zen garden music. And I will meditate. And I thought to myself, what would the best version of me do right now? And it was exactly that. I'm meditating and I'm listening to the Zen Garden music. And if anyone were to walk by and see me, I would not be embarrassed. Well, why would I not be embarrassed? Because the best version of me would do exactly what I'm doing right now. I've aligned my action today with what I actually value. However, if I started listening to a politics podcast in the sauna, I think I'd get a little embarrassed by that. And it's not because there's anything embarrassing about listening to politics, but I know the best version of me would not be doing that at that moment. Mm. I have a friend, Leslie, I wrote about this in our last book, Love People Use Things. She was at the grocery store, or she's at a, a, a retail store, and she asked herself, oh, I really want to buy this thing, but what would Josh do? <laughs> and she said she wanted to get one of those bracelets that said WWJD. <laughs> and I think it's a great question to ask, not ask yourself, what would Joshua Fields Milburn do? But what would the best version of me do? Right now, in this moment, would the best version of me scroll social media incessantly? Would the best version of me eat this junk food? Would the best version of me speed down the road and not wear my seatbelt? Would the best version of me mistreat my friends and loved ones? Would the best version of me have all of this negative self-talk that makes me miserable? Would the best version of me go into debt Would the best version of me be busy just for the sake of being busy and filling my calendar? Would the best version of me consume something I don't need, but the impulse of the moment tells me I want it right now? I don't think the best version of me would do those things. And the question is what would the best version of me do? And that is a beacon of how I want to live my
5: life. Right now. When you answer those questions, you can look at the current version and you can say, farewell, my old friend. And you turn and you face the best version of you. And you say, the best version of me, this is where I want to be.
2: And the alternative to that is, what would the weakest version of me do right now? The weakest version of me would indulge, would overindulge, would pacify himself. Hmm would eat the junk food because it's good and the sugary pleasure of the moment. That's what the weak version of me would do. Yeah. The weak version of me would react angrily to a friend who offends me. The weak version of me would get on social media and concern troll everyone who didn't agree with my ideology or opinion. The weakest version of me looks really ugly. To the best version of me, we we got a minimalist home tour we're going to embark on in a moment. But in Alabama, I thought first we could go back to Bree's question from Instagram. It's there on the first page if you got it here.
3: Yeah, Bree asks, "What are the knock-on effects of letting go?"
2: So the knock-on effects of letting go, the unanticipated effects of letting go. Uh, the first thing I can tell you is that freedom is a byproduct of letting go. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing. Freedom can be really scary. If you get total freedom, a lot of fears and insecurities creep in, right? Total freedom brings
5: with it its own set of problems. Oh man, I've seen this play out so much in the professional world. There are many people out there who start off thinking that what they want is freedom to set their own schedule, to not be micromanaged. And then when they taste that freedom and the responsibility it brings, it's so frightening that they go back to a life of, okay, I'd rather have someone else fill out my calendar for me. I'd rather have someone else tell me what I need to be working on at what time because I want the security of knowing that I'm creating value and I cannot provide that structure for myself. So freedom it's a beautiful thing, it's a wonderful thing, but we don't always want it in the areas where we think we want it, because that freedom comes with, with a lot of responsibility and risk.
2: And when I talk about freedom, I also want to I want to mention that you need you don't need anything, but it helps to have boundaries within your freedom. Now the question is, who's setting those boundaries for you? If everyone else is setting your boundaries, then you're going to feel really constricted. But if you're setting your own boundaries, you're free within the boundaries you've set. And that is a byproduct of letting go or at least a willingness to let go. You don't have to let go of everything in order to be willing to walk away from it. Earlier in the episode, I talked about walking out of movies. I will easily walk out of a movie If I'm not getting value from it, the same way I'll let go of a material item that is no longer serving me. Does this thing add value to my life? If so, great. If not, all right, let's let it go. And I'll say the same thing about a movie. However, if I compulsively let go of every material possession, that wouldn't be freedom either. If I walked out of every single movie that I attended, that wouldn't be freedom. That'd be a different kind of tyranny forced to walk out of the movie that adds value to my life forced to let go of the things that adds value to my life that's not intentionality that's not living deliberately that's not minimalism that's being told that you have to let go that's like putting butter all over your hands and trying to to scale the monkey bars or get on a climbing wall you're going to fall off immediately the key here with letting go is Letting go when it makes sense to let go. If I'm climbing a rock climbing wall, I let go in order to get up to the next rung, to get up to the next area. But if I let go too soon, I'll fall. If I hold on too long, I'm not going to get where I want to go.
5: Yeah. Uh, one knock-on effect. That's the word we're using. That means like a, an unanticipated positive externality. All right. So one knock-on effect of, uh, of letting go is wisdom. Uh, wisdom comes from... Following your conscience and being at peace with your conscience. Sometimes your conscience demands things of you and you know it from within. You know what you got to do. You know what change you need to make. And other people around you will, will justify you. They'll flatter you. They'll go, oh no, like you look great or you seem amazing or that was just fine. But there's something within you that says, no, my standards are different from what other people find acceptable in me. You know what you got to do and you don't get to have guarantees. Your conscience, when it demands something of you, it's going to have a cost and it's not always going to give you a promise like, oh, but if you pay the cost, I'll give you a brand new house. If you pay the cost, you'll get another job that will pay you more or everyone will respect you as a hero. No, your conscience has a way of saying, knock, knock. You got to let go. You got to walk through this door. You've got to be courageous. You've got to speak up. You've got to say what's right. And it's not until you follow your conscience that you get that peace, that sense of alignment, and then you begin to see the world differently. Your eyes begin to open and you get that wisdom that can only come from letting go of the things that your conscience demanded of you.
2: Mm. Yeah. Let's move on to the Minimalist Home Tour this week. This is number 47 in our series. We just sent these photos out to you if you subscribe to the video version of the podcast. I'm calling this one Monochrome Desires. This one's from Andy. What does Andy have to say?
3: Andy says, I live in London, originally from Hong Kong, and became a patron last year. My husband and I used to have so much stuff and liked impulse shopping. Now we are living a clutter-free life. Minimalism to me is similar to Taoism. Life is about balancing, yin and yang and having few desires.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's not about being desireless, right? We had an episode about desirelessness mm. and Anthony DeMello on that episode, I was reading from his his book. It was one of our live events and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. One of my favorite episodes of all time that we've done was that live event and I thought it translated really well to the recording. That doesn't always happen. When you record a live event, yeah. it doesn't necessarily translate to the you know, the 2D screen. totally, And that one did. And I did this reading from Anthony DeMello's book and we talked about the different types of desire. Yeah. It's okay to desire something, but needing it for your fulfillment, for your happiness, for your tranquility, then you've created a type of prison. The opposite is this. And I'm looking at this living room here and this looks like, I mean, it looks like where I would live, right? This is stunning. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, There's the table there that I think it's a a Snargard table. It's um, Scandinavian. I have one in my... um uh, back house there.
3: A guard.
2: Yeah,
5: yeah. You should have seen Bama's face as you're talking that talk. She's like looking at me like, wait, just, what?
3: He's naming furniture like they're Pokemon's like, hey, right. yeah, that one's a guard.
5: Well, it's, <laughs> it's
2: that's the thing, though. It's not just furniture. It's functional art is the way that I look at it. And that's what ah. I see when I look at a living room like this. And I'll do my best to describe it for those just listening to the audio version. There isn't any clutter in this living room. Is Big open windows. It's relatively beige, monochrome. Um, There's a plant in the corner. There is this interesting copper light that is coming down above the kitchen table. So this is like a living room and a kitchen table or a kitchen uh, dining area all sort of put together here. It's one giant open space. There's a TV on the wall. There's a couch there. There's a chair. What I don't see is any excess. However, this could be excess for some people because there are like... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine places to to sit here, and you look at Henry David Thoreau, who we talked about on a recent episode, and he would say, "I have three chairs. One is for solitude. One is for uh, a guest, and and three is for company or whatever." <laughs> right, and uh, for him, it was never going beyond that. And my personal living space, I have two chairs in there, you know, because I don't I, three is. Is a crowd to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, it's, that's what works well, but I don't need nine seats. However, in my, uh, where my wife and I share a space, a living room together, this would be perfect for us where we have just enough seating to have some company over, but then it's not enough. It's not so much that I feel burdened by excess. Mm-hmm. And this is all art. It looks, I mean, the, the color schemes, beautiful. The wood floors are beautiful. The walls are beautiful. There is an attention detail, but what I'm seeing here is that the form is following the function. It's the function of the space first, and the form has to comport with that. Quite often, when we get really obsessed about aesthetics, what happens is we try to cram the function into form. Yep. Some of my favorite chairs, like the wishbone chairs, they're stunning. They're beautiful but they're not very comfortable to me. They might be comfortable yeah. with someone else, but and I would like to have them at my house. But it would mean sit, sitting in an uncomfortable chair right. just for the sake of aesthetics.
5: Yeah, it's, it's a kind of qualitative excess, right? Where the number of things in the home don't change, but something is being used solely for aesthetic value and it's creating a sense of being out of place. And so you can feel that, dissonance in the home in that case with the chair or just like having a beautiful painting like sitting on top of the toilet or something it doesn't mean the painting needs to be thrown away but it's aesthetic excess it's qualitative excess
2: mm-hmm. yeah and and so when that happens we also become discouraged from using the thing as well that's right i don't like it so i'm not going to use it and so we've become now the beautiful thing has become a burden because not only is it out of commission but it's kind of getting in the way because yeah. it's there but I never want to use it and it's always sort of weighing on me. Yeah.
5: Beautiful home. Yes, yes indeed. I love your description man. I love that aesthetic breakdown.
2: Yeah. Bravo Andy. Um more about less. Let's read some more about less. We got an article here called How to Live Longer by Slowing Time. This is from our friend Dr. Christopher Ryan, his blog, and uh, this was actually a transcript from an old episode of one of his podcasts. Alabama is going to read this for us.
3: I was thinking about how journeys seem to take longer when you're not sure where you're going. The journey back always seems so much shorter. When you know where you're going, then you're not focused on the uncertainty of it. You're not wondering where it is. You're not wondering how much further it's going to be. You know how much further it's going to be. And so you don't think about it, and it ends up taking much less time, seemingly subjective time. And then I was applying that to life and the travel years and the years now where I'm doing the same thing every day. I've talked about that before how this idea that when there's a lot of variety and surprise and unexpected elements in your life, that life seems to take longer, it seems to last longer. Because time is really a measure of change. And so if there's nothing really changing in any tangible way in your life, it sort of seems like time stops in a way. But you're still aging. You're not just feeling it the same, you know? I mean, I guess it's like the difference between floating down a calm stretch of river or shooting the white water. You're much more alive and more aware of what's going on in the white water than you are when you're just floating down a lazy river. So it's as if we've dredged all the rivers to remove the rocks, the obstacles, the white water. And so now the rivers, we've dammed them all quite literally. And so the rivers are all placid and sluggish and slow moving. And as we float down these rivers, we're safe. But we're also zoned out because nothing's happening. We're bored. So we take our antidepressants and we get our silly little hobbies or whatever, kill time. and Think about that expression. To kill time? No. Time's killing you, man. That movement of time is so heightened when you're traveling. And when you're not traveling, you can almost ignore it because one day is like the next, like the next, like the next. And then you look back and you say, holy shit, it's been four months since I got here or five months since I got that raise or that doesn't happen when you're traveling. So travel stretches time. Novelty stretches time because time is a measure of change. That's all it is. Time doesn't exist in a vacuum. If there's nothing there, nothing changing, time stops. There is no time. Because Mm. how else do you measure it? You can only measure it by change. So if nothing changes, there is no time. And if a lot changes time slows down to pack it all in. That's the secret of experience, in my opinion. That if you have a life full of change, full of novelty, full of interesting things, full of risk, because those things don't come without risk, you live longer. I don't care if you die when you're 27. You live longer than the person who gets up and goes to work and puts in their 70 years and 80 years and then croaks You've lived longer, not only more interesting, not only better, but actually longer, because time stretches for you.
2: Ooh, that's good. I don't know that I, well, I want to expand on this a bit because I think what he's really talking about isn't travel. He talked about travel for a moment. For someone like me who hates travel, that's one way to gain novelty, but it's certainly not the only way to gain novelty. And I think I agree with his hypothesis here that that time measures change because we've all had that experience of being bored in a classroom and it feels like the time is just dripping off the clock and every minute feels like an hour. And you look up at the clock and you realize like only a minute has gone by and it's yeah. felt like so much longer. Well, why? Because there's no novelty there. Now, it's Pascal who said that all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly alone in an empty room. And so, yes, I think that's the baseline. And one of the things, unfortunately, we do, we seek novelty in all of these ways that aren't really that novel. There are these little dopamine bursts, like getting onto TikTok, and just scrolling endlessly through TikTok, yes, we're getting a little bit of novelty. And yes, it will make the clock tick by faster. But after a week of that, or a few months of that, and it becomes habitual, now all of a sudden, I'm bored with TikTok. Mm-hmm. Whenever a novelty becomes commonplace, we eventually become bored with that, especially, especially if we're
5: unable to, To sit quietly in an empty room. And we do need novelty for fulfillment. But what you're pointing out is the distinction between novelty consumption and novelty creation. When I learn how to play the guitar or when I say, you know what? I don't understand calculus. I'm going to learn calculus. Or I don't know Greek. I don't know German. I'm going to learn a new language. That's novelty creation versus I watch a TikTok video or I eat a bar of chocolate. That's novelty consumption. And the novelty consumption, it burns out really fast. And it's funny because uh, Epicurus is a name that we associate with pleasure. You know, we get the word Epicurean, but Epicurus believed that there were two types of pleasures. The first pleasure would be those things that are easy to obtain but they also aspire very quickly. But he believed that although the goal of life was pleasure, the greatest pleasure comes from those pleasures that require discipline in order to obtain. They are the pleasures of acquired taste. You do hard things that take a long time to develop a new skill or a new level of awareness, and then you have lasting pleasure and you continue to create novelty in those areas. And you don't have to travel or go out, you can also go within.
2: Yes. Beware of pleasures that are easy to acquire. Yep. And then seek out the pleasures that are difficult to acquire. The pleasure that I get from a really difficult workout or a long hike is different from the pleasure I get from sitting on the couch and eating potato chips, right? It's not that one of those is wrong. I don't pathologize sitting around and doing something that might be considered lazy from time to time, but also recognizing that the reward from one of those is gonna be far greater, and also the punishment of one of those. You're gonna pay for the easy pleasure. If you get the easy pleasure right now, there's going, you're going into debt in a meaningful way in your future. You're gonna to have to pay, if you're not paying for it now with effort, You're going to pay for it tomorrow with something else. For our added value segment today, TK, I've got this gal. She goes by the name The Japanese House when she performs musically. And her new album is called In the End, It Always Does. And the song you hear looping in the background right now is called Over There. And it's like her music is a fusion of all genres at once. It's singer-songwriter, it's jazz, it's 80s pop music, it's electronic music. And somehow, all of these things that shouldn't work together, she brings them together beautifully. And they work so well. And this song that you're listening to right now, and you're about to hear the whole song, is a song about the past intruding on the present we've talked about that a bit today the regrets of the past and dealing with those regrets coming up again and again or the resentments from the past and quite often if we if we don't make amends with the past it keeps coming into the present and interrupt, mm. interrupting that moment that we're experiencing right now here's over there from the japanese house All right, that's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Malabama Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all.
3: We'll see you next time. Peace. She does.